Well, I ask you to open up God's Word to John's Gospel, chapter 10, please. John's Gospel, chapter 10, as we come again to tell the grand old story of the Gospel and the message of God's redeeming grace through Christ Jesus. John 10, and we will commence reading at verse 22. John 10 and verse 22. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father, for which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him, whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away, away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. Amen. We trust the Lord will bless his word. Let's just once again come before the Lord, still ourselves, God's people, uniting in prayer. Praying the Lord will take the word, the message, and speak even to those amongst us who are not saved. Let's pray. Our gracious God, eternal Father, we do thank Thee for the book that's open before us, sitting on our lap before me in this pulpit. And we pray, Lord, that as we come to consider what is written here, we thank the Lord we're not coming with anything new in the sense that it's never been heard before, it's never been preached before. We do thank Thee for the gospel preached unto Abraham. We thank Thee there has been and only will be one gospel. There is only one Savior, one Redeemer. It's only by faith in Him and in that finished work that any can enter into heaven. And so, Lord, we come, come to preach the gospel. And I pray that You will help me. Lord, it's a tremendous privilege. It really is, Lord, to stand with the message of life, to herald it to those who are dead in their sin. It is also a tremendous responsibility and Lord, I pray that God would help me 
that thou would wash me in Redeemer's blood, and that thou would fill me full of the Holy Ghost, that the things that thou hast helped me, uh, Lord, to prepare and to study out and to think upon and to meditate over, that you would help me now to deliver it. And we pray for the opening of the heart of the sinner. We pray for the opening of the ear and of the eye and of the understanding. These are things that thou thyself can do. And we pray, O God, that thou will take even the instrumentality of this weak earthen vessel and through the preaching of the word that thou will accomplish the ends, O God, of bringing sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, hear us now and do us good as we wait in thy presence. For we ask this all in Jesus' precious and his worthy name. Amen. It's always important to remember and to emphasize that God's plan of redemption is executed in time. While it was decreed in what we might view as eternity past, and its effects run on into eternity to come, the accomplishment of redemption took place on the stage of world history. And so the things that we read in the Bible, they are historical records and realities. And since this is the case, it's always good to immerse ourselves in what we have before us. Now, we are thankful that the Apostle John provides for us the location and the period of the scene that we're going to consider this evening. Look at verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. Winter was the season, but more precisely, it was at the time of the Feast of Dedication. The feast was celebrated, that feast was celebrated in the month that really takes the latter half of our month of November and the first half of our month of December. And so it truly was winter in terms of weather in Jerusalem. In the adult Bible class, we have been considering the seven feasts of the Lord as they're mentioned there in Leviticus 23. But you won't find this feast mentioned there. In fact, you'll not find this feast mentioned in the Old Testament at all. This is not one of the prescribed feasts which were in the law, ceremonial law of Moses. This is about two months after the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is the last of the prescribed feasts there that we find in Leviticus 23. The last of those official feasts, we might say, in the Jewish religious calendar. This feast. It's also known as the Feast of Lights, or Hanukkah. Now, it was instituted in 165 B.C. by a man called Judas Maccabeus to commemorate the cleansing of the temple after its desecration by a wicked Syrian ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus was a devotee of Greek culture, and he was polytheistic. He made a law by which he basically wanted, wanted to Hellenize everybody. He wanted to impose Greek culture and religion upon everyone. He wanted to standardize everything and bring it into line with what the Greeks taught and thought. And of course, well, the Jews, they wouldn't accept this. They wouldn't accept that pagan religion, and it brought them into conflict with him. Now, around 170 BC, Antiochus, we read from history, he entered into Jerusalem with mighty force, and he conquered the temple compound. 
It was heavily defended at that time. There was many uh, of the residents of Jerusalem that flocked to that compound for security. But Antiochus, he came, he took the temple, he took the compound, and he went in, entered into the most holy place, and he sacrificed a pig in that place. He also set up a statue of Zeus, the supreme false god of the Greeks. And that was really the start of a systematic effort to stamp out Judaism, and he was brutal in his oppression of the Jews. Under his direction, they were massacred. And those who weren't killed, they were required to make sacrifices unto this pagan god Zeus, or else they'd be put to death. The savage persecution, it obviously caused, a, obviously caused the pious Jews to rise up. And this is where this man, uh, Judas Maccabeus, comes to the fore. It was under his effective leadership that the Jews retook Jerusalem, they cleansed the temple, relit the golden lampstand, and they also offered sacrifices to rededicate the temple. The Feast of Dedication marks that event in Israel's history. And though not prescribed in the law of Moses, Christ was present at this feast which commemorated the blessing of God upon His people. This was the fourth feast that we have recorded in John's Gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ attended. So that's the time. Now we also have the location. It's pointed out to us in verse 23, And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now Solomon's porch was the name given to two porches, associated with the temple in Jerusalem. The original temple was constructed by King Solomon. We read about that in 1 Kings chapter 6. But the reconstruction of the temple was later modified by King Herod and included this area. It was on the east side of the temple courtyard, and it was covered with a roof. And that provided more protection from the, than the open courtyards in the temple compound. And this is where Christ was. It's a place where people often went for meditative thought. It was also a place where rabbis taught their followers, their disciples. And this is probably what the Lord was doing, walking to and fro in the winter season, keeping himself warm as he taught his followers. So that sets the scene for us. You need to picture yourself there. You need to place yourself there around 33 A.D. Beside the temple, Christ walking under the shelter off that porch as he's teaching his disciples. And in the corner of your eye, just notice there a group, a group approaching. And tonight we're going to consider these verses that we have read under the heading, an answer. It was a group of skeptics, but an answer the skeptics didn't like. So firstly, notice with me the request of the skeptics. Verse 24. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now when we read in this verse here the Jews, it signifies the leader, leaders of the Jews. This would have probably have consisted of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the leaders of the people, the usual antagonists. And they come here and they encircle the Savior. That's the image. He was walking and the script, they just come and they surround him. Now the reason why? 
The details concerning the, the timing of this is important because it points out a striking irony here. Here are the Jews, and they're at this feast. They're celebrating a great earthly deliverer, Judas Maccabeus, while at the same time they are confronting the heavenly deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this irony is not lost in our own wee country. There are those, and they celebrate the deliverance that King William of Orange brought to this nation from the darkness of Roman Catholicism under the reign of King James II. And there is nothing wrong with marking or remembering events like that in a nation's history. But they were not, those individuals are maybe not as concerned about the deliverance that King Jesus brings. Now I wonder, does that describe you? You celebrate, you mark, an earthly deliverer, an earthly king. Just like these people, they were gathered here in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication. They remember in Judas Maccabeus and that cleansing of the temple and uh, delivering and retaking Jerusalem. And yet here they were celebrating Him all the while confronting heaven's deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it was winter all around these people, but there was a winter in their hearts towards the Savior. And they come to Christ, and they confront Him, and they make this request of Him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now this is something the leaders of Israel, they frequently did. We see it all through the Gospels. They like to confront Christ with a question. And you might say, well, they're doing a good thing here. They're, they're making an inquiry of Christ, except for the fact that they had corrupt motives. They had no desire for information. They did not want clarification. They only wanted to put Christ in a situation where He would say something that to them would be blasphemous, that they would have just caused to put Him to death. That's why they're coming, inquiring of Christ. Yes, they had come. They had come with a, a question. But the intent behind it and the motive behind it was corrupt. There was others. They asked right questions of Christ, Nicodemus, the rich young ruler. There were scribes, there were lawyers, there were Pharisees. Yes, they asked the right question of the right person, but on this occasion, this was all a pretense. They were setting a trap to catch Christ out. This was not a noble effort to get clarity on the truth. They weren't sincere, and every time the Lord answered them, every time the Lord gave them the answer, they rejected it. They didn't like it, and they would try to kill Him. And they were basically accusing the Lord here of keeping them in suspense. But this was a sham. They did not really want to know. They knew exactly who He claimed to be. They had tried to kill Him three times before. And by the way, there's three months here between verses 21 and 22. And so these were the men that were still smarting from the previous exchange and dialogue that they had with the Savior in which He had called them false shepherds. 
and those who wanted to do nothing but to kill and to steal and to destroy the people whom they were supposed to lead. So they had a wrong motive in coming to Christ. This is all a pretense, as I said, to extract an answer from him by which they can enact their violence towards him. They say, tell us plainly. That's what they requested. And they tried to make it out that because Christ spoke to the people in parabolic language, giving statements such as, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, that they had still some remaining doubt as to who he was. But those sayings, rather than confusing the people, were the Lord accommodating to the weakness of our frail understanding that the people might understand who He is and what He had came to do. Christ could not have made it more clear to them. And you know, sinner, sitting in this meeting, maybe frequently, Sunday evening after Sunday evening, the message from this pulpit could be no more clear or plain. All are sinners. All are deserving of hell. Christ is the only Savior, and if you desire or want to be saved, well, the only way is by faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's difficult? What's unclear about that? That's the plain message of the gospel. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here's these people, oh, they were coming with a pretext. They were coming with a a doubt, as it were, causing, or that Christ was causing them to doubt. It was all a pretense, all a sham. Just tell us plainly. The Lord had told them plainly. The Lord had accommodated to their weakness real, finite understanding that we have by using parabolic language. The I am sayings of Christ. Oh, the message was clear. But this question really revealed the great unbelief in these men. Christ had given them plenty of evidence as to who he was. But they simply chose not to believe it. They did not need evidence. These men, they needed faith to try and conceal their unbelief and hide it behind a supposed lack of evidence from Christ. Well, that's to charge God that you haven't made it plain enough. You haven't made it clear enough. Isn't that the tactic from sinners and their unbelief? Well, they say they need more facts. We need more evidence. And while there is a place for apologetics, I'm not decrying that. No, no, you start, need to start believing the facts and the truths that you have. That's what you need to do. And you need to stop hardening your heart in unbelief. It can't be any plainer. It can't be any clearer. All of sin. Christ is the only Savior. The request of the skeptics. But secondly, I draw to your attention the reply of the Savior. Look down at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. As I said, the Lord Jesus, he, 
he couldn't have made it any plainer. plainer. He had given them proof of his identity in two different ways. And he tells us that here by his words and his works. But in each case, they did not believe him. Firstly, his words. Look what he says. I told you, and ye believe not. And he had repeatedly told them who he was. He had repeatedly given witness not only to who he was, but what he had come to do. He had told them before that he came in his Father's name. He had told them that he came not to do his own will, but he came to do the will of him that sent him. He had told them that those who believe in him would have eternal life. The Lord Jesus had told them all these things before, and yet they believed not his word. It wasn't that these people were not told or that they hadn't heard. That was not the problem. The problem was they did not believe the word of God. Sinner, that's your problem. It's not that you haven't been told. It's not that you haven't heard, especially if you've come to this house, especially if you've been born into this land. It's not the problem you haven't been told. It's not the problem you haven't heard. The problem is your heart. You have not believed. The Jewish leaders, they had already rejected the witness of his words. Turn back to John 8. And we see this. And there Christ, well, he had told them that he was the light of the world. And those that heard him, well, they were skeptical of this. And they said in verse 13, John 8 and verse 13, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. His word wasn't enough to them. But the Lord went further in giving proof of his identity. He backed up his words with his works, his declarations with his deeds. He says over there again in John chapter 10 and the verse 25, he goes on to say, The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. What abundance of mighty miracles the Lord performed before them. You know, to back up his claim that he was the light of the world. As he says there in John chapter 8. What did he do in the next chapter? John chapter 9. He healed a man born blind. He gave sight and light unto that individual. And so he was backing up his claim. That was one of the seven sign miracles that's recorded in John's gospel. But there's many other wondrous works that the Lord Jesus performed before them that John himself says he surmises that all the books in the world wouldn't be able to contain it. The Lord had given these people incontestable proof by the works that he did and by the words that he spoke that he was the Christ of God. Look what it says in verse 26, the start of it, but ye believe not. Not only did they not believe the works, but they blasphemously said that it was by the power of the devil that Christ did those things. Oh, no, no, the Lord had told them plainly. The Lord had showed them clearly. The fault was not with him, the fault was with them. It was lack of faith, not lack of facts. And that's the problem. Unbelief. 
unbelief, willing unbelief. The Lord has told you clearly, sinner, from this pulpit time and time again of your need of a Savior, of your need and the urgency to come to Jesus Christ. But unbelief keeps you in your sin. Nicodemus, when he came to Christ by night, he said, no man could do these miracles that thou doest except God be with them. He was clouded a bit and his understanding granted. But the Lord dealt graciously with him and brought him to a point of believing. And through believing in the Son, the only begotten Son, whom God sent, the individual will never perish. It's by faith in Christ that sinners have eternal life. The question is asked then, if God has made His Word plain, and since He has given many incontestable proofs that Jesus is the Christ, the only Savior, why do people not believe? Well, we often find that when the Lord answered questions, He gave those asking the questions much more information and the answer that they anticipated. And that's the case here. This tells us why men will not believe or do not believe. Look at verses 26. But ye believe not because, here's the reason, here's why, ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The Lord tells them here why they will not believe. They are not. One of his sheep. You see, he had compared his true followers and those who believe in him to sheep. And he picks up on the analogy of what we have recorded in the opening verses of this chapter that he spoke three months prior to this occasion. And I believe he's speaking to the exact same man. He's reminding them of a message they heard in the past. Just three months ago, he brings it back to their mind. And he tells them, this is why they will not believe, because ye are not of my sheep. Christ's sheep are marked by two things here. He tells us they're marked by hearing. That's what he says. He says, my sheep hear my voice. They're marked by hearing. And the hearing that's spoken of in this verse, verse 27 it's a hearing with the understanding. It's a hearing with respect. It's hearing so as to acknowledge this is from the Lord. True sheep, they pay attention to the shepherd's voice, to his words. It's evident in this circumstance that the unbelievers, they did not have respect for the words of Christ or else they would have believed in him. True sheep, they're also marked by heeding. Not only do they hear, but they also heed. They do what is commanded of them. And first and foremost, the command is to follow me. That's Christ. Unbelievers, in our text here, well, they certainly did not follow Christ. And the reason why they didn't follow him is because they did not believe in him. Lack of faith. It caused lack of following. 
And you should examine yourselves by these things. Ask yourself this question. Am I? Am I one of Christ's sheep? Am I in the fold, in the flock of God? Is the Lord my shepherd? Have I heard His voice with understanding, heeded Him and followed Him? The Lord had given them proof through His words and His works. And He goes on then, as I said, He always gives more in His answer than what they asked. And He goes on here, not only does He speak about the proof that He had given them, but He speaks of the promise of His purpose. In verse 28, He says there, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. My Father which gave them Me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of My Father's hand. That's why He came. He came that a sheep might have eternal life and never perish. How is that possible? Since all are born under sin, under condemnation and under the curse. Well, the answer is the gospel, my friend. Because he came as a good shepherd. And he came to lay down his life for the sheep. He came to be the substitute, to suffer, to bleed, to die upon the cross, giving his life as a sacrifice unto God, by which sin could be atoned. Sinners could be forgiven, released from the debt of their sin, righteousness fulfilled, and justified in God's sight. It's by faith in that finished work that sinners have eternal life. The word here, give, in verse 28, I give unto them. Indicates that salvation's not of works. It's a gracious gift from God. And this cut across the thinking of the religious leaders. They knew nothing of grace, only works. Based merit, that's all that they could think about. And there's many like that still today. Thinking that they can work for their salvation. That they can merit it by what they do. But that's contrary to what the Scripture teaches, friend. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. The Lord gives eternal life unto those who trust in Him. A salvation that cannot be lost. Hence it's designated eternal life. It's not temporary life. It's not conditional life. It's eternal life. And rejoice in that fact. And just in case anyone would or misunderstand or confuse what the Lord was speaking about here or teaching here, the Lord, He adds this, And they shall never perish. A positive, I give unto them eternal life. And a negative, They shall never perish. What a promise that is. Shall never. Those are words. Two words are translated from two Greek words which form a double negative. And in our English language, well, a double negative, it cancels out the negative. But in the Greek language, it makes it emphatic. How much plainer can it be stated that once you're saved, you're always saved. 
the Lord, he not only doubles down on it here, he triples down on it. Because he goes on to say, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Man is an italics. And as you know, that indicates that it's not there in the original language, but it's supplied by the translators. The meaning here is that nothing, absolutely nothing, can take salvation from the believer. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one and nothing. That's the message tonight. Can it be any more plainer? Christ triples down on it here. I give unto them eternal life. Yes, I know in other places he speaks about giving life, an abundant life, but this is designated eternal life, not temporary, not conditional, not something that can be lost. And then he puts in the negative. He shall never perish. And then he goes again. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. There's eternal security, believer and saint. Sinner, this is what God offers to you tonight. It's plain, it's clear, it's simple, it's upon the page of Scripture. It's a gift to be received by faith. Christ goes on in this reply to the skeptics, verse 29. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. In these words here, the Savior, he's transitioning from showing how he and the Father are one in purpose of the salvation of the elect to how they are one in essence. And here the Lord Jesus tells them plainly, so plainly, that he is God manifest in the flesh. Cults would say that the Lord never told people The Lord Jesus never told people that he was God. But he so clearly did here. This is the theme of John's Gospel. Go to the opening words of this book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, sorry, was with God, and the Word was God. We can read the words of verse 30, John 10, like this. In the Greek, I and the Father, we are one. And that's a wonderful little detail that we maybe lose. Because by using the first person plural pronoun we, Christ shows that while they were one in essence, they were distinct in person. What a wonderful thing that is. That's a rebuttal to the false teachings of the cults and Islam and Judaism who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. I and the Father, we are one. What a reply by the Savior. Sinner, I don't know why you're here tonight. Is it a pretense? Is there a shaft? And you're not really interested in clarification. 
and you're not really interested in the answer that maybe Christ will give. Just like these men here, they didn't like it. They didn't like what they heard. And that brings me to my last point, the reaction of the smitten. The request of the skeptics. The reply of the Savior. And the reaction of the smitten. These words of Christ pierced these men through. And we see the reaction in verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Note that word again. This is not the first time. Nor would it be the last time. If you go on down to read in verse 39. This was in fact the fourth time. Go to John's Gospel, chapter 5. John's Gospel, chapter 5. And then in verse 16, we read that the Jews, they sought to slay the Lord Jesus because of supposed Sabbath desecration. But then down in verse 18, we read these words, Therefore, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, well, that's in their eyes, but said, also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Go over then to chapter 7 and the verse number 1. Here's another time they tried to kill him. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Go to chapter 8, then in the verse 58. And he had just declared before Abraham was, I am, a clear declaration of his deity. And then in verse 59, we read these words, Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. It's the fourth attempt here in John's Gospel, chapter 10, where they try to kill the Savior. And what is this a revelation of? Well, it's a revelation of their continual rejection of him. While at the same time, a revelation of his mercy and his long-suffering. It's true, according to Matthew 18, 31, that the Jews could no longer ca carry out capital punishment. The Romans reserved that right to themselves. But this was not some sort of legal procedure these men were going through. This was hatred. This was vengeance. This was anger against Christ. If they would have and could have, they would have killed Christ on the spot. Why? Why? Because He offered them heaven? Because He offered them eternal life? Because He offered them the forgiveness of sins? Because He offered them eternal joy? No, that wasn't the reason. It's because He was the light of the world. And as the light, He manifested their sin. And they did not like it. And they wanted to crush the life out of Him. But he stops him, for his time was not yet, and it was not the way in which he was today. Here's a challenge to you, sinner. We both know that you're not going to pick up stones to stone Christ. 
You can't do that anyway because he's in heaven. But you seek to slay him. To put him and his claims and the convicting influence of his spirit to death in your life. And you do that by how? Your continual rejection of him. You're figuratively picking up stones to kill the claims of Christ on your life by your rejection of him. And yet, in mercy, he calls again. Now, I ask you, why do you reject him? Is it because he offers you eternal life? Is it because he offers you eternal joy? Is it because he offers you heaven? Well, it can't be that. That's so foolish. Who would reject Christ for that? What's the reason? What is the reason? I'm asking you, sinner. Is it love of sin? Is it pride? Is it unbelief? Is it fear? Is it a combination of all those things? Matthew Henry said of these men, the struggle was between their convictions, which told them he was Christ, and their corruptions. That's where the struggle. And that may be the case with you, sinner. There's a struggle because you know full well the gospel to be true. And yet there's a struggle with your corruption. Because you love your sin. And you're suppressing the truth and unbelief. In order that you might keep on sinning. But in the midst of their madness, Christ, he retains his sovereign calmness as he's centered in the will of God and in mercy. Look what he says in verse 32. Jesus answered them. They're standing with stones in their hands. And look what he answers them. Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works, those works, do ye stone me? Do you stone me because I gave sight to the man born blind? Do you stone me because I healed the man beside the pool of Bethesda who was lame for 38 years? Do you stone me because I give sight to the blind? Open the ears of the deaf. Make the lame to walk. Cleanse the leopards. Cast out demons. Which of these works are you stoning me for? He's trying to get to the reason. He's been merciful to them. He's trying to help them understand the foolishness of what they're doing. And I ask you tonight, sinner, which one of God's great works are you going to reject Christ for tonight? His work of creation. Oh, you're fearfully, you're wonderfully made. He's given you life. His work of providence. He showered you with many good gifts and many a blessing. Is that why you're going to reject Christ tonight? Which of the works? He's trying to reason with you. He's trying to bring you to see your foolishness of rejecting the one who can save you. Are you going to? Are you going to figuratively stone Christ because of the work of redemption? Because he died upon the cross to see his sinners? 
Oh, here's mercy. Christ is, is extending mercy to these men. He's trying to get them to understand how foolish their reaction is. Just because it doesn't square with their thinking. What work are you going to reject Christ for tonight? Here were skeptics. They doubted. Well, really, did they doubt? So they asked there, If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly, how long dost thou make us to doubt? They were just hiding behind that. They had plainly heard. They had clearly seen. There was nothing else for them to do but believe and repent of their sin. And yet they would not do it. They did not hear Christ's voice. And they did not heed His command. And the reason why is because they were not Christ's sheep. You know, I thought about that in the prayer meeting. And the preacher, and God doesn't even do this. He doesn't take a goat and change it into a sheep. He does not do that. There are those for whom Christ has died. And they will hear. And they will heed. And that is a sign and a mark that they are the sheep of God. Now that's not to say there isn't a change in a person's life. That's conversion. Because there is. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. But I, no preacher, nor God himself can take a goat and make them a sheep. Sinner, you need to heed the voice of God. It's plain. It's clear. I cannot make it any simpler. You're a sinner. You're deserving of eternal wrath. Christ is a Savior. He's accomplished the work. The gift is offered freely by His grace. Receive it. Believe in Him. Call on Him for salvation. And then you will have eternal life. And you shall never perish. Neither shall any thing or person pluck you out of the Father's hand. Is that not good news? That's great news. No wonder we come to tell the old, old story. Aren't you glad, child of God, that you don't come to God's house every week to hear a new gospel? Sure, where would be eternal security or confidence or assurance in that? It's the grand old message of Jesus and His love. May God give you grace to believe 
and trust in Him. Let's bow for prayer. Let's just still ourselves before the Lord. Before we pray, just let's be quiet and still. God's people lay hold upon the Lord. There's maybe someone who isn't saved, sit amongst us. I'll try to make it as easy as possible for you. There's a minister's room to my right, to your left, through the doors here. If you want to know more, if you want to have me open up the Word again, well, I'll gladly do that. Slip around the side and take the opportunity, the quietness there, in privacy. But come to Christ. He will save you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow in your presence. We thank thee for. We thank the Lord this encounter, this historical record here of the day that these men encircled Christ as he walked in Solomon's porch in the midst of winter. Lord, we thank thee for the answer that Christ gave. Thank for that wonderful verse, 28. I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's been an anchor for many a saint of God throughout the ages. And we pray, O God, that thou will take your word tonight, that thou would speak to those who have gathered or to those who watch online. Salvation's off the Lord. Lord, we can only preach the word. Lord, the one who applies it to the heart, who opens the understanding, who gives those choice twin gifts of faith and repentance. Lord, we look to Thee to do the work, to turn the heels of men, women, and young people, boys and girls, as they would reject Christ maybe again tonight, to figuratively take up stones and slay and kill His claims, His influence upon their lives. Lord, turn them. Turn them on to Jesus Christ, the one who is able, willing, ready to save their soul. So, Lord, part us with Thy blessing. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship and communion of the Spirit be our portion of thy dear people, both now and forevermore. We ask this all in Jesus' precious and his worthy name. Amen.